0: We continue with the Opinion of the Court in McDonald v. City of Chicago. Part 3 With this framework in mind, we now turn directly to the question whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is incorporated in the concept of due process. In answering that question, as just explained, we must decide whether the right to keep and bear arms is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty, or, as we have said in a related context, whether this right is deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. Section A Our decision in Heller points unmistakably to the answer. Self-defense is a basic right recognized by many legal systems from ancient times to the present day. And in Heller, we held that individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right. Explaining that the need for defense of self, family, and property is most acute in the home, we found that this right applies to handguns because they are the most preferred firearm in the nation to keep, and use for protection of one's home and family. Thus, we concluded, citizens must be permitted to use handguns for the core lawful purpose of self-defense. Heller makes it clear that this right is deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. Heller explored the right's origins, noting that the 1689 English Bill of Rights explicitly protected a right to keep arms for self-defense and that by 1765, Blackstone was able to assert that the right to keep and bear arms was one of the fundamental rights of Englishmen. Blackstone's assessment was shared by the American colonists. As we noted in Heller, King George III's attempt to disarm the colonists in the 1760s and 1770s provoked polemical reactions by Americans invoking their rights as Englishmen to keep arms. The right to keep and bear arms was considered no less fundamental by those who drafted and ratified the Bill of Rights. During the 1788 ratification debates, the fear that the federal government would disarm the people in order to impose rule through a standing army or select militia was pervasive in anti-federalist rhetoric. Federalists responded, not by arguing that the right was insufficiently important to warrant protection, but by contending that the right was adequately protected by the Constitution's assignment of only limited powers to the federal government. Thus, anti-federalists and federalists alike agreed that the right to bear arms was fundamental to the newly formed system of government. But those who were fearful, that the new federal government would infringe traditional rights, such as the right to keep and bear arms, insisted on the adoption of the Bill of Rights as a condition for ratification of the Constitution. This is surely powerful evidence that the right was regarded as fundamental in the sense relevant here. This understanding persisted in the years immediately following the ratification of the Bill of Rights, In addition to the four states that had adopted Second Amendment analogs before ratification, nine more states adopted state constitutional provisions protecting an individual right to keep and bear arms between 1789 and 1820. Founding-era legal commentators confirmed the importance of the right to early Americans. St. George Tucker, for example, described the right to keep and bear arms as the true palladium of liberty, and explained that prohibitions on the right would place liberty on the brink of destruction. Section B. 1. By the 1850s, the perceived threat that had prompted the inclusion of the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights, the fear that the national government would disarm the universal militia had largely faded as a popular concern, but the right to keep and bear arms was highly valued for purposes of self-defense. Abolitionist authors wrote in support of the right, and when attempts were made to disarm free soldiers in bloody Kansas, Senator Charles Sumner, who later played a leading role in the adoption of the 14th Amendment, proclaimed, that never was the rifle more needed in just self-defense than now in Kansas. Indeed, the 1856 Republican Party platform protested that in Kansas, the constitutional rights of the people had been fraudulently and violently taken from them, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms had been infringed. After the Civil War... Many of the over 180,000 African Americans who served in the Union Army returned to the states of the old Confederacy, where systematic efforts were made to disarm them and other blacks. The laws of some states formally prohibited African Americans from possessing firearms. For example, a Mississippi law provided that no freedman, free Negro, or mulatto not in the military service of the United States government, and not licensed so to do by the board of police of his or her county, shall keep or carry firearms of any kind, or any ammunition, dirk, or bowie knife. Throughout the South, armed parties, often consisting of ex-Confederate soldiers serving in the state militias, forcibly took firearms from newly freed slaves. In the first session of the thirty-ninth Congress, Senator Wilson told his colleagues, In Mississippi, rebel state forces, men who were in the rebel armies and traversing the state, visiting the freedmen, disarming them, perpetrating murders and outrages upon them, and the same things are done in other sections of the country. The Report of the Joint Committee on Reconstruction which was widely reprinted in the press and distributed by members of the 39th Congress to their constituents shortly after Congress approved the 14th Amendment, contained numerous examples of such abuses. In one town, the Marshal took all arms from returned colored soldiers and was very prompt in shooting the blacks whenever an opportunity occurred as Senator Wilson put it during the debate on a failed proposal to disband Southern militias. There is one unbroken chain of testimony from all people that are loyal to this country that the greatest outrages are perpetrated by armed men who go up and down the country, searching houses, disarming people, committing outrages of every kind and description. Union army commanders took steps to secure the right of all citizens to keep and bear arms, but the 39th Congress concluded that legislative action was necessary. Its efforts to safeguard the right to keep and bear arms demonstrate that the right was still recognized to be fundamental. The most explicit evidence of Congress's aim appears in section 14 of the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866, which provided that the right to have full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition, enjoyment, and disposition of a state, real and personal, including the constitutional right to bear arms, shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens without respect to race or color or previous condition of slavery. Section 14 thus explicitly guaranteed that all the citizens, black and white, would have the constitutional right to bear arms. The Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was considered at the same time as the Freedmen's Bureau Act, similarly sought to protect the right of all citizens to keep and bear arms. Section 1 of the Civil Rights Act guaranteed the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings, for the security of persons and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens. This language was virtually identical to language in Section 14 of the Freedmen's Bureau Act, and, as noted, the latter provision went on to explain that one of the laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition, enjoyment, and disposition of a state, real and personal, was the constitutional right to bear arms. Representative Bingham believed that the Civil Rights Act protected the same rights as enumerated in the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, which of course explicitly mentioned the right to keep and bear arms. The unavoidable conclusion is that the Civil Rights Act, like the Freedmen's Bureau Act, aimed to protect the constitutional right to bear arms and not simply to prohibit discrimination. Congress, however, ultimately deemed these legislative remedies insufficient. Southern resistance, presidential vetoes, and this Court's pre-Civil War precedent persuaded Congress that a constitutional amendment was necessary to provide full protection for the rights of blacks. Today, it is generally accepted that the 14th Amendment was understood to provide a constitutional basis for protecting the rights set out in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. In debating the 14th Amendment, the Thirty-ninth Congress referred to the right to keep and bear arms as a fundamental right deserving of protection. Senator Samuel Pomeroy described three indispensable safeguards of liberty under our form of government. One of these, he said, was the right to keep and bear arms. Every man should have the right to bear arms for the defense of himself and family and his homestead, and if the cabin door of the freedman is broken open, and the intruder enters for purposes as vile as were known to slavery— then should a well-loaded musket be in the hand of the occupant to send the polluted wretch to another world, where his wretchedness will forever remain complete. Even those who thought the 14th Amendment unnecessary believed that blacks as citizens have the equal right to protection and to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Evidence from the period immediately following the ratification of the 14th Amendment only confirms that the right to keep and bear arms was considered fundamental. In an 1868 speech addressing the disarmament of freedmen, Representative Stevens emphasized the necessity of the right. Disarm a community and you rob them of the means of defending life. Take away their weapons of defense and you take away the inalienable right of defending liberty. The 14th Amendment, now so happily adopted, settles the whole question, and in debating the Civil Rights Act of 1871, Congress routinely referred to the right to keep and bear arms and decried the continued disarmament of blacks in the South. Finally, Legal commentators from the period emphasized the fundamental nature of the right. The right to keep and bear arms was also widely protected by state constitutions at the time when the 14th Amendment was ratified. In 1868, 22 of the 37 states in the Union had state constitutional provisions explicitly protecting the right to keep and bear arms. Quite a few of these state constitutional guarantees, moreover, explicitly protected the right to keep and bear arms as an individual right to self-defense. What is more, state constitutions adopted during the Reconstruction era by former Confederate states included a right to keep and bear arms. A clear majority of the states in 1868, therefore, recognized the right to keep and bear arms as being among the foundational rights necessary to our system of government. In sum, it is clear that the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment counted the right to keep and bear arms among those fundamental rights necessary to our system of ordered liberty. 2. Despite all this evidence, municipal respondents contend that Congress in the years immediately following the Civil War, Merely sought to outlaw discriminatory measures taken against freedmen, which it addressed by adopting a non-discrimination principle, and that even an outright ban on the possession of firearms was regarded as acceptable, so long as it was not done in a discriminatory manner. They argue that members of Congress overwhelmingly viewed Section 1 of the 14th Amendment as an anti-discrimination rule, and they cite statements to the effect that the section would outlaw discriminatory measures. This argument is implausible. First, while Section 1 of the 14th Amendment contains an anti-discrimination rule, namely the Equal Protection Clause, municipal respondents can hardly mean that Section 1 does no more than prohibit discrimination. If that were so, then the First Amendment, as applied to the states, would not prohibit non-discriminatory abridgments of the rights to freedom of speech or freedom of religion. The Fourth Amendment, as applied to the states, would not prohibit all unreasonable searches and seizures, but only discriminatory searches and seizures, and so on. We assume that this is not municipal respondents' view, so what they must mean is that the Second Amendment should be singled out for special, and specially unfavorable, treatment. We reject that suggestion. Second, municipal respondents' argument ignores the clear terms of the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866, which acknowledged the existence of the right to bear arms. If that law had used language such as the equal benefit of laws concerning the bearing of arms, it would be possible to interpret it as simply a prohibition of racial discrimination. But Section 14 speaks of and protects the constitutional right to bear arms, an unmistakable reference to the right protected by the Second Amendment and it protects the full and equal benefit of this right in the states. It would have been nonsensical for Congress to guarantee the full and equal benefit of a constitutional right that does not exist. Third, if the 39th Congress had outlawed only those laws that discriminate on the basis of race or previous condition of servitude, African Americans in the South Would likely have remained vulnerable to attack by many of their worst abusers, the state militia and state peace officers. In the years immediately following the Civil War, a law banning the possession of guns by all private citizens would have been non-discriminatory only in the formal sense. Any such law, like the Chicago and Oak Park ordinances challenged here, presumably would have permitted the possession of guns by those acting under the authority of the state, and would thus have left firearms in the hands of the militia and the local peace officers. And, as the report on the Joint Committee on Reconstruction revealed, those groups were widely involved in harassing blacks in the South. Fourth, Municipal Respondents' purely anti-discrimination theory of the 14th Amendment disregards the plight of whites in the South who oppose the Black Codes. If the 39th Congress and the ratifying public had simply prohibited racial discrimination with respect to the bearing of arms, opponents of the Black Codes would have been left without the means of self-defense, as had abolitionists in Kansas. In the 1850s. Fifth, the 39th Congress's response to proposals to disband and disarm the Southern militias is instructive. Despite recognizing and deploring the abuses of these militias, the 39th Congress balked at a proposal to disarm them. Disarmament, it was argued, would violate the members' right to bear arms and it was ultimately decided to disband the militias, but not to disarm their members. It cannot be doubted that the right to bear arms was regarded as a substantive guarantee, not a prohibition that could be ignored so long as the states legislated in an even-handed manner. Part 4 Municipal Respondents' Remaining Arguments are at war with our central holding in Heller, that the Second Amendment protects a personal right to keep and bear arms for lawful purposes, most notably for self-defense within the home. Municipal respondents, in effect, ask us to treat the right recognized in Heller as a second-class right, subject to an entirely different body of rules, than the other Bill of Rights guarantees that we have held to be incorporated into the Due Process Clause. Municipal respondents' main argument is nothing less than a plea to disregard 50 years of incorporation precedent and return to a bygone era. Municipal respondents submit that the Due Process Clause protects only those rights recognized by all temperate and civilized governments from a deep and universal sense of their justice. According to municipal respondents, if it is possible to imagine any civilized legal system that does not recognize a particular right, then the due process clause does not make that right binding on the states. Therefore, the municipal respondents continue because such countries as England, Canada, Australia, Japan, Denmark, Finland, Luxembourg, and New Zealand either ban or severely limit handgun ownership. It must follow that no right to possess such weapons is protected by the 14th Amendment. This line of argument is, of course, inconsistent with the long-established standard we apply in incorporation cases, and the present-day implications of municipal respondents' argument are stunning. For example, many of the rights that our Bill of Rights provides for persons accused of criminal offenses are virtually unique to this country. If our understanding of the right to a jury trial, the right against self-incrimination, and the right to counsel— were necessary attributes of any civilized country. It would follow that the United States is the only civilized nation in the world. Municipal respondents attempt to salvage their position by suggesting that their argument applies only to substantive as opposed to procedural rights. But even in this trimmed form, municipal respondents' argument flies in the face of more than a half-century of precedent. For example, in Everson v. Board of Education of Ewing, 1947, the court held that the 14th Amendment incorporates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Yet several of the countries that municipal respondents recognize as civilized have established state churches. If we were to adopt municipal respondents' theory, all of this Court's Establishment Clause precedents involving actions taken by state and local governments would go by the Boards. Municipal respondents maintain that the Second Amendment differs from all of the other provisions of the Bill of Rights because it concerns the right to possess a deadly implement and thus has implications for public safety. And they note that there is intense disagreement on the question whether the private possession of guns in the home increases or decreases gun deaths and injuries. The right to keep and bear arms, however, is not the only constitutional right that has controversial public safety implications. All of the constitutional provisions that impose restrictions on law enforcement and on the prosecution of crimes fall into the same category. Municipal respondents cite no case in which we have refrained from holding that a provision of the Bill of Rights is binding on the states on the ground that the right at issue has disputed public safety implications. We likewise reject municipal respondents' argument that we should depart from our established incorporation methodology on the ground that making the Second Amendment binding on the states and their subdivisions is inconsistent with principles of federalism and will stifle experimentation. Municipal respondents point out, quite correctly, that conditions and problems differ from locality to locality and that citizens in different jurisdictions have divergent views on the issue of gun control. Municipal respondents, therefore, urge us to allow state and local governments to enact any gun control law that they deem to be reasonable including a complete ban on the possession of handguns in the home for self-defense. There is nothing new in the argument that in order to respect federalism and allow useful state experimentation, a federal constitutional right should not be fully binding on the states. This argument was made repeatedly and eloquently by members of this court who rejected the concept of incorporation and urged retention of the two-track approach to incorporation. Throughout the era of selective incorporation, Justice Harlan, in particular, invoking the values of federalism and state experimentation, fought a determined rear-guard action to preserve the two-track approach. Time and again, however, those pleas failed. Unless we turn back the clock or adopt a special incorporation test applicable only to the Second Amendment, municipal respondents' argument must be rejected. Under our precedents, if a Bill of Rights guarantee is fundamental from an American perspective, then unless stare decisis counsels otherwise, That guarantee is fully binding on the states and thus limits their ability to devise solutions to social problems that suit local needs and values. As noted by the 38 states that have appeared in this case as amici, supporting petitioners, state and local experimentation with reasonable firearms regulations will continue under the Second Amendment. Municipal respondents and their amici complain that incorporation of the Second Amendment right will lead to extensive and costly litigation, but this argument applies with even greater force to constitutional rights and remedies that have already been held to be binding on the states. Consider the exclusionary rule. Although the exclusionary rule is not an individual right— but a judicially created rule, this court made the rule applicable to the states. The exclusionary rule is said to result in tens of thousands of contested suppression motions each year. Municipal respondents assert that although most state constitutions protect firearms rights, state courts have held that these rights are subject to interest balancing, and have sustained a variety of restrictions. In Heller, however, we expressly rejected the argument that the scope of the Second Amendment right should be determined by judicial interest balancing, and this Court, decades ago, abandoned the notion that the Fourteenth Amendment applies to the States only a watered-down, subjective version of the individual guarantees of the Bill of Rights. As evidence that the 14th Amendment has not historically been understood to restrict the authority of the states to regulate firearms, municipal respondents and supporting amici cite a variety of state and local firearms laws that courts have upheld. But what is most striking about their research is the paucity of precedent, sustaining bans comparable to those at issue here and in Heller. Municipal respondents cite precisely one case from the late 20th century in which such a ban was sustained. It is important to keep in mind that Heller, while striking down a law that prohibited the possession of handguns in the home, recognized that the right to keep and bear arms is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. We made it clear in Heller that our holding did not cast doubt on such long-standing regulatory measures as prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. We repeat those assurances here. Despite municipal respondents' doomsday proclamations, incorporation does not imperil every law regulating firearms. Municipal respondents argue, finally, that the right to keep and bear arms is unique among the rights set out in the First Eight Amendments because the reason for codifying the Second Amendment to protect the militia differs from the purpose, primarily to use firearms to engage in self-defense. That is claimed to make the right implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Municipal respondents suggest that the Second Amendment right differs from the rights heretofore incorporated, because the latter were valued for their own sake. But we have never previously suggested that incorporation of a right turns on whether it has intrinsic as opposed to instrumental value, and quite a few of the rights previously held to be incorporated, for example, the right to counsel and the right to confront and subpoena witnesses, are clearly instrumental by any measure. Moreover, this contention repackages one of the chief arguments that we rejected in Heller, i.e. that the scope of the Second Amendment right is defined by the immediate threat that led to the inclusion of that right in the Bill of Rights. In Heller, we recognized that the codification of this right was prompted by fear that the federal government would disarm and thus disable the militias, but we rejected the suggestion that the right was valued only as a means of preserving the militias. On the contrary, we stressed that the right was also valued because the possession of firearms was thought to be essential for self-defense. As we put it, the self-defense was the central component of the right itself part 5 section a we turn finally to the two dissenting opinions justice stevens's eloquent opinion covers ground already addressed and therefore little need be added in response justice stevens would ground the prohibitions against state action squarely on due process, without intermediate reliance on any of the first eight amendments. The question presented in this case, in his view, is whether the particular right asserted by petitioners applies to the states because of the 14th Amendment itself, standing on its own bottom. He would hold that the rights protected against state infringement by the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause need not be identical in shape or scope to the rights protected against federal government infringement by the various provisions of the Bill of Rights. As we have explained, the Court for the past half-century has moved away from the two-track approach. If we were now to accept Justice Stevens's theory across the board— Decades of decisions would be undermined. We assume that this is not what is proposed. What is urged instead, it appears, is that this theory be revived solely for the individual right that Heller recognized over vigorous dissents. The relationship between the Bill of Rights guarantees and the states must be governed by a single neutral principle. It is far too late to exhume what Justice Brennan, writing for the Court 46 years ago, derided as the notion that the 14th Amendment applies to the States only a watered-down subjective version of the individual guarantees of the Bill of Rights. Section B Justice Breyer's dissent makes several points to which we briefly respond. To begin... While there is certainly room for disagreement about Heller's analysis of the history of the right to keep and bear arms, nothing written since Heller persuades us to reopen the question there decided. Few other questions of original meaning have been as thoroughly explored. Justice Breyer's conclusion that the 14th Amendment does not incorporate the right to keep and bear arms appears to rest primarily on four factors. First, there is no popular consensus that the right is fundamental. Second, the right does not protect minorities or persons neglected by those holding political power. Third, incorporation of the Second Amendment right would amount to a significant incursion on a traditional and important area of state concern, altering the constitutional relationship between the states and the federal government, and preventing local variations. And fourth, determining the scope of the Second Amendment right in cases involving state and local laws will force judges to answer difficult empirical questions regarding matters that are outside their area of expertise. Even if we believed that these factors were relevant to the incorporation inquiry, none of these factors undermines the case for incorporation of the right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. First, we have never held that a provision of the Bill of Rights applies to the states only if there is a popular consensus that the right is fundamental, and we see no basis for such a rule. But in this case, as it turns out, there is evidence of such a consensus. An amicus brief submitted by 58 members of the Senate and 251 members of the House of Representatives urges us to hold that the right to keep and bear arms is fundamental. Another brief submitted by 38 states takes the same position. Second, petitioners and many others who live in high-crime areas dispute the proposition that the Second Amendment right does not protect minorities and those lacking political clout. The plight of Chicagoans living in high-crime areas was recently highlighted when two Illinois legislators representing Chicago districts called on the governor to deploy the Illinois National Guard to patrol the city's streets. The legislators noted that the number of Chicago homicide victims during the current year equaled the number of American soldiers killed during that same period in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that 80% of the Chicago victims were Black. Amiki supporting incorporation of the right to keep and bear arms contend that the right is especially important for women and members of other groups that may be especially vulnerable to violent crime. If, as petitioners believe, their safety and the safety of other law-abiding members of the community would be enhanced by the possession of handguns in the home for self-defense, then the Second Amendment right protects the rights of minorities and other residents of high-crime areas whose needs are not being met by elected public officials. Third, Justice Breyer is correct that incorporation of the Second Amendment right will to some extent limit the legislative freedom of the states, but this is always true when a Bill of Rights provision is incorporated. Incorporation always restricts experimentation and local variations, but that does not stop the court from incorporating virtually every other provision of the Bill of Rights. The enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. This conclusion is no more remarkable with respect to the Second Amendment than it is with respect to all other limitations on state power found in the Constitution. Finally, Justice Breyer is incorrect that incorporation will require judges to assess the costs and benefits of firearms restrictions, and thus to make difficult empirical judgments in an area in which they lack expertise. As we have noted, while his opinion in Heller recommended an interest-balancing test, the court specifically rejected that suggestion the very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. In Heller, we held that the Second Amendment protects the right to possess a handgun in the home for the purpose of self-defense. Unless considerations of stare decisis counsel otherwise, A provision of the Bill of Rights that protects a right that is fundamental from an American perspective applies equally to the federal government and the states. We therefore hold that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment incorporates the Second Amendment right recognized in Heller. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed and the case is remanded for further proceedings. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the contact tab. Until next episode... Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.